This talk was given by Shyla Catherine. For more information and a schedule of her events, visit the Insight Meditation South Bay website at www.imsb.org. For information about online programs, visit the Bodhi Courses website at www.bodhicourses.org. Bodhi is spelled B-O-D-H-I. So I wanted to begin this series on the great disciples of the Buddha by speaking about one disciple named Angulimala. And I've titled this talk, Angulimala, An Ethical Transformation. And it follows after the talk I gave last week on forgiveness. So I'd like to begin with the verse that was uttered by Angulimala. And it is one of his enlightenment verses. It was a custom of the time that some of the great disciples would make a verse that would be remembered as characterizing their awakening or their experience or something that was like important to their profoundest insights. And this is called The Moon Released. He who once lived in negligence and then is negligent no more. He's the one who brightens this world like the moon released from a cloud. Who follows up with wholesome deeds, unwholesome deeds he may have done. He's the one who brightens this world like the moon released from a cloud. Indeed, that youthful bhikkhu who pours himself into the Buddhist teachings, he's the one who brightens this world like the moon released from a cloud. Of all the monks who were awakened under the guidance of the Buddha, none was more notorious than the author of these verses, the robber and the murderer Angulimala. The story tells us that Angulimala was born as the son of a Brahmin chaplain to King Pasenadi of Kosala. And on the day of his birth, his father, the chaplain to the king, prepared his son's horoscope and discovered that he was born under the sign of the robbers, the robbers' constellation. And so believing that his son would have innate proclivities toward violence and crime, they decided to name him Ahimsaka, the harmless one, hoping that this would counter that predilection towards violence or at least serve as a constant reminder to the ideal of nonviolence, of gentleness and peace. So Ahimsaka grew up enjoying a peaceful and happy childhood. He was intelligent, he was strong, he became a brilliant student at the medical school in Takasila, and he worked very diligently for his mentor and teacher. He was industrious, he was dutiful. And he became the most trusted, the favored, the teacher's pet. But the favor that he enjoyed by his teacher sparked jealousy among his fellow students. 
And they couldn't find anything specific about his behavior that they could use to sour his relationship with the teacher because he was so studious, he was prompt, he was industrious, he was considerate. But as jealousy continued to eat into the hearts and minds of the students, they devised a plan that would bring Ahimsaka into disfavor by his teacher. And so what they plotted was a plan to approach the teacher in successive groups, in three successive groups. And each group would approach the teacher and tell the master that they had heard that Ahimsaka was planning to topple the teacher and take over the position of teaching for himself. And they decided to approach them in sequence because this would gradually wear away, plant seeds of doubt and wear away the teacher's faith and confidence in his student and disciple. And each successive mention of gossip would reinforce the seeds planted by the previous group. And so the first two groups approached the teacher, and he didn't believe their lies. In fact, he sent them away, scolding them not to talk such nonsense. But by the third group, the gossip had started to take effect. And once suspicion takes root, anything can be viewed as a threat. Anything can start to reinforce those suspicions. And so soon the master began to interpret rather innocent actions as threats and fear that Ahimsaka was plotting his murder, his takeover, his coup. So it's customary at that time for students to give gifts to the guru. And as their graduation approached, the master asked Ahimsaka to present him with a very special specific gift. He said he must present him to seal his education, to complete that process. He must present him with a garland made of 1,000 human little fingers. Now, it isn't clear in the tradition why this teacher made such a gruesome respect. Speculation says possibly the master was aware of the horoscope's predictions. Possibly he anticipated that when Ahimsaka went out to kill, he would be imprisoned or he would be executed or he would be killed trying to complete the task. Or perhaps he assumed that Ahimsaka would simply refuse. And then that might be an excuse for the teacher to dispel him or to berate him or something. But instead, Ahimsaka at first offered some protest, but it was rather weak, you know, rather weak protest. And then he left the university and he went into the forest. And he began to ambush victims who were traveling on the road through the forest between the villages. After he killed them, he would keep the little finger And he, in order to keep them together, as he started to get a collection, he started to string them together. Hence, he became known as the finger mala, anguli mala. Anguli means finger, mala is the the necklace, the finger necklace. So when he was killing, of course, terror and fear spread throughout the land. 
No one would enter the forests or travel the roads for fear that they would be ambushed by this terrifying Angulimala. So trade suffered, and even woodcutters were said to be too afraid to enter the forest, to collect the firewood. And so in order to find more victims, because fewer people were traveling on the roads, Angulimala had to come closer to the villages and would ambush farmers in the outlying villages. And so the villagers and the farmers sought refuge in the cities, and it created a great deal of social unrest so much so that the people demanded that the king apprehend this vicious murderer. Now, at this point in the story, the king was beginning to assemble an army to track and execute Angulimala, and at this point he had already collected 999 little fingers. So he had only one more to go. Now, nobody knew who this man was. He was just known as Angulimala. But his mother had figured out who that robber, this murderer, must have been her son who never came back from the university, that those astrological predictions must have come to pass. And so she set out before the army to try to reach her son, before the army came and killed him. But at the same time, the Buddha entered the forest. Now, it's interesting because people tried to stop the Buddha. They said the sutta in, this is um, a lot of what I'm speaking about is based upon uh, the Angulimala Sutta, which is number 86 in the Middle Ink Discourses. And it says there, Cowherds, shepherds, and plowmen passing by saw the Blessed One walking along the road leading towards Angulimala and told him, Do not take this road, recluse. On this road is the bandit Angulimala, who is murderous, bloody-handed, given to blows and violence, merciless to living beings. Villages and towns and districts have been laid waste by him. He is constantly murdering people, and he wears their fingers as a garland. Men have come along this road in groups of 10, 20, 30, and even 40, but still they have fallen into Angulimala's hands. When this was said, the Blessed One went on in silence. And so Angulimala is there in the forest, and he sees his mother coming, and he thinks, ah! There's my 1,000th finger. But then he sees that the Buddha is a closer target. The Buddha had placed himself between Angulimala and his mother. And the Buddha's strolling along, you know, at a Buddha pace. Just strolling along. And Angulimala is moving swiftly to attack the Buddha. But even though the Buddha was just strolling along at a Buddha pace, And Angulimala was moving so swiftly, Angulimala could never catch up to him. And so he was moving so swiftly and swiftly and swiftly, but nevertheless, he couldn't get close. He couldn't catch up. The Buddha was just strolling along. And so finally, Angulimala calls out and he says, Stop, recluse, stop. And the Buddha replies, I have stopped, Angulimala. You stop too as he continues to stroll along at the Buddha pace. (laughs) And so 
This dialogue continues as the Buddha is sort of strolling along and Angulimala can't manage to catch up. And so it continues and the Buddha says, Angulimala, I have stopped forever. I abstain from violence toward living beings. But you have no restraint towards things that live. That is why I have stopped and you have not. It's a simple teaching, but I think there's tremendous power in stopping, in restraint. And sometimes we don't even know what we need to do to change the patterns that cause so much harm in our lives. But we might remember that we can simply stop. We can not do the harmful action. Not doing is an option. Also in the Middle Link Discourses, there's a sutta number eight called Effacement, where it says, suppose there were an uneven path and another even path by which to avoid it. And suppose there were an uneven ford and another even ford by which to avoid it. A person given to killing living beings has abstention from killing living beings by which to avoid it. One given to gossip has abstention from gossip by which to avoid it. One given to restlessness has non-restlessness by which to avoid it. One given to fraud has non-fraud by which to avoid it. One given to negligence has diligence by which to avoid it. And it goes on listing all kinds of many, 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 many different unwholesome actions or mental states or conditions of mind, and they're not doing it, or they're opposite by which to avoid it. And it describes this tremendous power that we have for restraint. So obviously this teaching on stopping goes far beyond the injunction to just stop killing living beings and cutting off their little finger. What else must stop? Action in the Buddhist tradition is defined as action of body, action of speech, and action of mind. Of course, actions of body include things like maintaining the precepts, or wholesome actions of body would include maintaining the precepts, and unwholesome actions would, would include breaking the precepts. So are we killing? Are we stealing? Are we engaging in sexual abuse? What's going on with our actions of body? Wholesome actions of speech include not lying, not gossiping, not using speech to cause harm or divide people from each other. But we also have to consider the actions of mind. On gross levels, mental harm could be caused just by harboring thoughts, thoughts of ill will, thoughts of anger, thoughts of jealousy, revenge, hatred, or covetousness. So we can choose to stop not only doing gross actions with the body, but we can choose to stop entertaining and harboring such thoughts. On slightly more subtle levels, obsessive thinking is also an action of the mind that leads to impatience and anxiety and depression and worry. Holding wrong views are also actions of mind. And we can choose to not perpetuate or stop 
such actions of mind. In fact, all the associated thoughts that suck us into the world of our own imaginings, our conceptual proliferations, what in Pali is called papancha, we can choose to stop. And maybe we come to meditation in a large part to calm the restless mind. The implication of profound stopping can go even further. We can stop all the actions that lead to suffering and that keep us caught in this cycle of suffering because this path leads to the stopping of clinging, the ending of identification. We cease fabricating I, me, and mine in contact with everything we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, or think. We stop the attachments that lead to further becoming. We put an end to the intentions that keep producing that karmic conditioning. The stopping that the Buddha introduced on Gulimala to can lead to a radical and complete transformation. It's a cessation that recontextualizes all of life. And when Angulimala heard this, his actions of body, his actions of speech, and perhaps most importantly, his actions of mind were affected in that simple moment when they stopped walking. Angulimala realized the possibility of pacifying and calming and cleansing the aggression within his own mind. The Itivutaka says, With a mind free from thoughts, he has found the realm of peace. And so right there in the forest, Angulimala laid down his weapons, and he asked the Buddha to admit him into the order of monks for ordination. And the Buddha said, agreed. He said, you know, come, which was sufficient ordination ritual at that time. And he returned with the Buddha to the park where the Sangha was residing. Now, by this time, all this drama was happening in the forest. The king had managed to assemble his army. But they were quite scared. They were, you know, Angulimala was notorious. And he went first to greet the Buddha, to ask for the Buddha's blessings for his success and the safety of his men. And so when King Pasenadi approached the Buddha, they learned that he had become ordained. And it says in the Angulimala Sutta that King Pasenadi says, Venerable Sir, we ourselves could not tame him with force and weapons, yet the Blessed One has tamed him without force or weapons. So then there's this sweet little exchange between the king and Angulimala. The king offers to provide for his food and his robes, but actually Angulimala doesn't need anything because he had undertaken some additional austerity practices, so he was sufficient with the clothes he was wearing and the bowl that he had. So then the king departed and left with his army to go back to the village, uh, back to the city. But it wasn't so long after that, while Angulimala was on alms round in the nearby village, he heard a woman crying out in pain. She was 
enduring a very difficult labor, a birth. She was birthing a deformed child. And Angulimala was moved with compassion and recognized how much suffering there is in the world. And he went back to the monastery area or the park where the Buddha was and discussed this with the Buddha. I think it's very significant that this man who couldn't give a damn about life earlier was now very moved. Compassion arose. Compassion arose when he saw this suffering. And so the Buddha sent him back to the woman to make a truth vow. The Buddha said, Angulimala, go into Savati and say to that woman, Sister, since I was born, I do not recall that I have ever intentionally deprived a living being of life. By this truth, may you be well and may your infant be well. And then Angulimala replied, Venerable sir, wouldn't I be telling a deliberate lie? For I have intentionally deprived many living beings of life. And then the Buddha replied, Then Angulimala, go into Savati and say to that woman, Sister, since I was born with the noble birth, I do not recall that I have ever intentionally deprived a living being of life. By this truth, may you be well and may your infant be well. And Angulimala did this, and both the mother and the child became well. And word spread, and Angulimala became something of a patron saint for pregnant women. Now, not only did he become something of a patron saint, he also became an arhant. He practiced diligently and freed his mind from the causes of suffering. He ended all the unwholesome states. He ended the taints. He ended the defilements. But it isn't just a simple happily ever after ending because he had done some pretty horrible things. And it's understood that those horrible things might still have some karmic impact. And the karma of his previous deeds did follow him He had difficulty obtaining alms in the villages. And he was periodically stoned when he was on alms round by villagers who were angry at him or angry mobs. One time he came to the Buddha after coming out of the village and he had blood running from a cut in his head. His bowl was broken and his outer robe had been torn because he had been beaten by a mob. And the Buddha simply said to him, bear it, bear it. You are experiencing here and now the results of your deeds. Now it worked out pretty well for Angulimala because even though he endured a few beatings, he became an arhant instead of became executed. So you can imagine though that when word gets out that criminals could avoid execution, by ordaining as a monk, this would not be so good for the Buddhist order. And in fact, the villagers demanded that the Buddha make a rule that would prohibit criminals from ordaining. And when they asked him this, he complied. So from that point forward, criminals could not join the Sangha. They could not ordain. 
But still we have this story of Angulimala. We have his life as a message of redemption that describes the power that all people have to overcome the conditioning. We have the power to change for the better. Angulimala took a new birth as a monastic. And in that new birth, he lived the holy life with compassion, with restraint, and with wisdom. Even if a serial killer can change and can transform his dispositions and his mind to the point of becoming fully awakened, we can overcome our own errors. <laughs> we can overcome our own follies and our own acts of ignorance, addiction, ill will, and cruelty. His story reminds us about how incredibly malleable the human mind is and how open we are to transformation. It may not be easy to change, but we can. Like the bright moon, we can emerge from behind the clouds, the clouds of our own ignorance and conditioned tendencies. We can stop creating the causes for suffering that are formed through our own harmful acts, whether those acts be of body, of speech, or of mind. So please reflect for a moment. Are there any tendencies that you tend to act on that you know and see lead to harm and suffering, either for yourself or others? Are there actions of body, speech, and mind that have become a habit or that you tend to slide into that you know are harmful? Could you remind yourself that you have not doing that as an option? Whatever that is, not doing that is an option for avoiding it. You can stop. If Angulimala can stop, we can stop. We can transform not only our bodily and verbal actions, which are more coarse, but we can also transform the mental patterns of our own minds. And in stopping, we might discover and experience a profound stillness, a sort of fresh start, a rebirth that's characterized by compassion, restraint, and wisdom. This is the foundation, this basis of compassion, wisdom, restraint, and clear actions, actions based upon the precepts of non-harming. These become the foundations of our practice, the path, and our practice becomes a path that leads to perhaps an even greater stopping, an experience that the, the discourses call cessation, emptiness, release, liberation, the experience of Nibbana.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.